Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Welcome back, everybody. Lisa Tarmati here, your host. Fabulous to have you with me again for another crazy episode of Pushing the Limits. Before we get underway with today's guest, who I know you're going to find very, very exciting and interesting, uh, just a reminder uh, to check out our epigenetics program, our flagship program that we do, our, one of our main programs besides our online run training system, uh, where we look at your genes and how to optimize your life, your nutrition, your food, your, your, your exercise all aspects of your life, including your social, your career, what parts of your mind you use the most, your dominant hormones, all this information is now uh, able to be accessed and we can identify the lifestyle changes and the interventions that we can make to optimize your life. So if you want to know a little bit more about that program, head on over to lisatarmity.com, hit the work with us button and you'll see our peak epigenetics program. Go and check that out. Uh, I also like to remind you about my new supplement, NMN, nicotinamide mononucleotide, a bloody long name, I know, but it's about longevity and anti-aging. There is a a ton of science that has gone into the uh, research into NMN and it's as a precursor for NAD, which is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. I've had a couple of podcast episodes with Dr. Alina Serenova. I'd love you to go and check those out. She is the founder of the company and I'm importing it now into New Zealand, Australia and down the centre of the world. So if you want to check out that anti-aging and longevity supplement, I spent months trying to get it. So make sure if you're down the end of the world and you want top quality, independently certified scientists back uh, a supplement that is really does what it says on the label, then check it out. Go to www.nmnbio.nz nmnbio.nz and find out all about it. Right, today's guest is, oh, he's a bit of a legend. Um, Dean Stott is his name. He's a ex-Special uh, Forces soldier. He was in the Special Boat Service, um, British Army is where he came from originally, and he spent 16 years going into the most dangerous places on the planet and doing his job as a frogman. It's his uh, nickname on his uh, website, even as the frogman. He is the author of a book called Relentless, Go figure, we've both got books called Relentless, so I think we knew that we were going to get along. Um, He's a motivational speaker. He's also a world record holder. Uh, Most recently, he cycled uh, the entire Pan American Highway. We're talking, what is it, 14,000 miles or something ridiculous, and he did it in under 100 days. He's an absolute legend. Uh, And he had to get it done in time to get to Harry and Megan's uh, wedding. So he was desperate to get it done under 100 days. It's a very interesting story. This is a guy who's lived life on the edge in every which way you can possibly imagine. So I'm really looking forward to sharing his insights and his story with you now. Right, over to the show with Dean Stott. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Pushing the Limits. Your host, Lisa Tamati here, sitting in New Zealand and ready for a fantastic interview. Today, I have a bit of a hard-ass with me. (laughs) I think uh, it's a bit bit hard to describe this man, what he's done. Um, I have Dean Stott with me. Dean, welcome to the show. It's Uh, fantastic to have you. Yeah, you're sitting in Orange County? 
That's it. Yeah, moved to moved to Orange County in California six months ago. Actually, in the middle of the pandemic, just took just took advantage of the world pausing and uh, just changed scenery. Just a change of scenery. Right, Dean, we're going to have a really interesting conversation because when I, when I discovered you actually through another Friends podcast, My, My Vitality, shout out to Sean and everyone over there, um, and I realised that we had the same uh, title of our books. Where's your one, mate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Relentless. <laughs> My one's a bit smaller. <laughs> um, um, I thought, yeah, this guy's probably right up my alley. So, um, Dean, you are known as the Frogman. <laughs> you, you've yeah. been in the Special Forces, uh, Special Boat uh, Services. You um, have also uh, become an expeditionary athlete, an adventurer in, in latter years. Um, but, I, you know, I want to go back a little bit and let's start into um, were you always this determined and crazy and like head through the wall type of person? Tell us a little bit about your background for starters. Yeah, so I, I don't know whether I was. It's on reflection you look back and think, yeah, maybe I was slightly. Um, you know, you touched on I was in the military. My, my father was in the military um, and I, I grew up surrounded by that in that environment but it was never like forced upon me to continue any sort of tradition and, and things like that my father was the army football manager and coach so he was very sports oriented what we would call a tracksuit soldier um, <laughs> you know, he very much the, you know his career was based on on his sporting abilities so there was a, that competitive drive anyway that I had from my father my parents split up when I was a young age um and when I was about eight years old, mm-hmm. uh, I moved away with my mother for a couple of years. And my father then got custody of me and me and my sisters. So he went back uh, to live with my dad. So I only had the, the single parent and we just went everywhere with him. And it was wow. all with the military and all these sporting events. Um, I wasn't, you know, the, the children of today with technology, you, don't, you know, when we were younger, as you all know, we... Yeah. No, you weren't allowed in the house unless it was absolutely raining or yep. pitch black. So we had some uh, a natural physical robustness. Um, but I, I joined the military. Well, I approached my father and told him my intentions of joining the military um, when I was 17. And he, he told me I'd last two minutes. I don't know whether <laughs> that was reverse psychology for me to, to push harder and prove him wrong. Um, but I was about 65 kilos and five foot seven. So I wasn't you know, the figure, the man that I am today. Um, but when I did join the military, I, I then went through training and things like that. And I didn't have aspirations of being special forces or commandos or, or anything like that. Um, I, didn't, I wasn't even really aware about the structure of the military anyway, because it was just sport. That's all I'd seen with my dad. I hadn't seen the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, but then when I passed basic training, it's only 10 weeks long, you know, you then get a little bit of confidence in, in your abilities. And then you started in a short period of time, by the age of 20, uh, no, 21, actually, I was a para commando, a diver, and a PTI. I'd done every wow. arduous course within the military, but I'd grown so quick over those two or three years. Wow. And I was probably about 85 kilos now. I'm five foot 11. So um, I was getting confident in my own abilities, and I was also growing into the individual that I was today. And, and then, I mean, once you pass a certain threshold or pass a course, you then sort of look at, well, what's next? Um, you know, I wasn't the best on the courses, but I just gave it my 
my 100%. And then it's sort of, your, your career then starts channeling in one direction. Mm. You know, you then, those before you or your peers and mentors are all going special forces. And it's like, the, the next question is, well, why not? Let's have a, let's have a crack. Yeah, but it takes a special type of person to be able to, you know, like I I grew up in a family with lots of stories. Like my dad was only in the military for a short time, but he was a firefighter. And um, so, you know, my husband's a firefighter, my dad's a firefighter, my brother's a firefighter, firefighter family. And, um, and and when I was a girl, when I was a little girl, we we couldn't I couldn't grow up to be a firefighter. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't you know unfortunately. Thank God they can now. And mm. you know if 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 my dad had had his way, I would have been a firefighter. I would have been an SAS soldier. I would have been like because he was a hard ass, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he wanted all of that for me. And you know unfortunately society sort of stopped some of the things. So I I ended up doing it in in other ways that I could could um to, could do it. But yeah. wasn't there a lot of pressure? Did you feel like you had to live, you know, your dad saying that to you, was that said in jest or anything, or did that really bite with you that, hey, I'm going to prove you wrong, you know, you know what I'm going for? Yeah, I think for me it was, and, and we'll talk about other stories in my in my career, and it seems to be a common theme. I know I, I thought there's no point in arguing with my father, you know, and, and or anyone, if if you, someone disagrees or didn't think you were going to do it, you know, the best way to prove them wrong is actually do by physically doing it. Yeah. Uh, and then you don't even need to say anything. You yeah. know, you just you just leave that that pause. And <laughs> and so I think for him, I don't know. I, I think it was a um, I think it was a throwaway comment. You know, the fact that I still talk about it now. Um, <laughs> it did stick in my. You know, a lot of people say to me, "Would you say that to your son?" I say, "Of course I wouldn't." You know, I mean, yeah. I. I um, but for me, it was that drive. Now, my, my father, we talked about, he, you know, he was, he was sport oriented. Actually, when I joined the military, I got sent to Germany to play football as well because I knew I was Dave Stott's son. Yeah. And it was actually, after a year of being there, that I said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, follow the same footsteps as my father. I want to carve my own path. And that's when I then went commando, power, and, and, and things wow. like that. So, so I was going a different path from my, my, my father. He wasn't a para or a commander and things like that. So for me, it was like this was new territory to me. Um, I wasn't really putting the pressure from him. I know a lot of guys who I served with, you know, from a young age, from young boys, all they ever wanted to be was a Royal Marine or a para. They wanted yeah. to be in SAS and things like that. I, I didn't. I, I wasn't. That's something I didn't. You weren't conditioned. I wasn't even aware of it. That was that was why. So when I approached these courses, I didn't put myself under that self-induced pressure which some of these guys um, and guys mm. and do. Mm. And um, and I think that helped in a way. I sort of approached it in a you know it is what it is. Um, we're not being naive. At, you know, it's not so it's, what was involved. It's, yeah, yeah it's walking the park. But yeah. uh, you know, I was aware how difficult it was. Um, but it wasn't the be all or end all. You know, some yeah. guys you see that don't achieve the grades or the, or the, the standards, and then they're broken. That's yeah. all they wanted all their life, and 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 I think it's actually too much pressure on themselves. Yep. So sort of going into these situations, you just need to be a bit open minded. And what was the tra- you know like to go into the special forces and to end up what you you did? <clears throat> what is it like to go through? Because we see the stuff on the telly, and you know everybody knows about how hard ass all that type of training is, and what what you need. What did you get out of it? What was the experience like for you to do those extreme sort of uh, you know 
course. Yeah, of- for me, I don't know, it's, it's very much uh, a grown-up course. Um, you know, the way that, the, you know, you've got this stuff on TV where you have the perception it's hard-ass and everyone's swearing and shouting at you. And it is night and day from that. You know, I understand with TV, there's a fine line between authenticity and entertainment. Yeah. Because actually, if you film selection, it's actually quite boring. You know what I mean? Yeah. These guys just get told where they got to go and they just they just do it. So, and that's what I liked about the course is that the fact that you, you're all grow, you're all treated as grown-ups. There was no shouting. They just told you what to do. They didn't need to shout. The selection was that hard in itself that, um, you know, they didn't need to put that additional um, pressure on you. So I did, I did like that. And the fact that they gave you some sort of independence, you know, to think on your own. I was, I was fortunate to be an instructor on the commando course and also the senior dive instructor. So I've wow. seen it from an instructor's perspective. Um, and, and on those sort of courses, you do give the students some motivation and, and inspiration as well. But on this one, you don't get anything. Um, <laughs> you actually get the reverse when you go to the jungle and they tell you about how you're not doing well and, you know, just give up now and save six months of your life and things like that. But again, I've had that reverse psychology as a young boy telling me I couldn't do it. So, um, yeah. And, 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 for me, and for me, I, I didn't go, you were, I was from, I came from the army. So I, the normal traditional route was the special SAS. I went SBS. Mm. Uh, one, it was one of the first army guys to do that. And that was because I'd spent eight years with three commander brigades, brigade recce force. And I was a senior dive instructor. So water, I was more comfortable in water. Um, so the special boat service was that natural transition yep. for me. So they, they say when you go on selection, be the grey man. You know, just don't don't stand out. Don't bring yeah. attention to yourself and things like yeah. that. I was the grey man for about two minutes because they were like, ah, you know, they screamed my name out and asked why I was going this way and not the traditional. Right, because you come um, from the wrong place. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Although I didn't put myself under my own self-induced pressure, I had that that sort of hovering above my head. But um, again, once you, if you're confident in your abilities, you know, there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. You know, yes. At that stage, I was a 28-year-old sergeant um, and I spent uh, seven years in brigade recce. I'd seen those who'd gone before me and I knew that I was, I was just as good as them. Um, and you sort of know that they're going to play these mind games. So mm. when they come, you, as long as you identify when they're coming and just, just deflect it. Yep. <laughs> has that really helped you in everything that you've done since like what are some of the key learnings that you take away from doing such arduous tough scary stuff um i, th- I think uh, you know you can't control the uncontrollables you know as long as you have a plan one thing i sort of really take from the military is that meticulous planning and and, and detail that goes into it and and the, and the fact that we rehearse rehearse and rehearse um you know we we do that over and over and over again. You know, you, I, I've been I've been guest speaking alongside sort of like some of the England rugby players, and, yeah, and yeah. they talk about the World Cup, about how they repeat an exercise yep. times to get one percent mm. better. You know, mm. we'll rehearse, rehearse all these different scenarios. Um, but ours is a bit of a different situation. You know, if if we get it wrong or pause or hesitate, you know, we don't lose five points in the rugby pitch, ah. we lose lives, you know, guys, people will get killed. So, so yeah, so there's, there's that, which I really took from, from the military is that unrelenting pursuit of excellence, trying to be the, the best you, you, you can be, but also as well as the planning and that we talk about, I'll probably talk about later on the bike ride is the fact that not, 
nothing always goes to plan. No, you have a plan. You have the best plan in the world, you know, and, and things never go to plan and don't yeah. worry about that. And, and that's what I, I liked about the special forces is they were like, ah, well, if you don't go to plan, you just react to the situation that's in front of you. And a good friend of mine told me a, a quote, you can't be experienced without experiences. And that's what I got from the military. The, the military, a lot of these big corporates around the world would love to try and replicate the scenarios or, or conditions that these people have been in, but you, you just can't. Yeah. Um, and that's the great thing about the military. They put you in some high octane environments, in difficult positions, difficult uh, environments, uh, and having to make difficult decisions. But you learn from that, you know, yep. whether it was the right decision, whether it was the wrong decision, you know, when you, you go have into to make scenario, yeah, you just reflect back on what worked and what didn't work. Wow. So, and, and so you were in the in the military for I think it was sixteen years, was it, or something? Was it? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. And so it was a big chunk of your life. And then, and then what happened? Tell us about the accident. <laughs> yeah. So I I, I joined uh, I, I joined the special forces on the height of the war on terror. So I was wow. You know, I was at the pinnacle of my career. Everything was going going really well. I was doing what these children nowadays play Call of Duty. You know, that was my lifestyle wow. uh, day in, day out. And we were just Thanks. about to go uh, pre-deployment training to go back out to Afghanistan again. And we were out training in Oman and I was doing what's called a hey-ho jump. So it's a high altitude, high opening jump. So unlike free fall where you're free aligned, you're actually still connected to the aircraft. You exit the aircraft at 15,000 feet and you do that because that's the limits of oxygen. Um, any high and you need oxygen. Uh-huh. Jump out of the aircraft and the parachute will open, pull open uh, straight away. I mean, you travel up to 50 kilometers or 30 minutes in the air to wow. your, your target area. So I'd done, you no, know, we'd done hundreds of these jumps before. I think it was about the third or fourth jump of the day. Um, and I just exited the aircraft as I normally did, no different from any time before. But this time when I looked, uh, there was something wrong and my leg was actually caught in the line above my head. So I was oh trying to God. clear my leg in time before the parachute opened um, and potentially took my leg off. But I couldn't, I couldn't clear it in time. The parachute opened, pulled my leg up over my head and to the right. Thankfully, my, my, my foot released um, and otherwise I wouldn't be here having this conversation. But straight away, I knew there was, a, there was a problem. The pain was so severe that I was vomiting. And because of the, the oxygen, how thin the air was, I was drifting in and out of consciousness. But no oh. one else in the team knew there was a situation. So you know, I wasn't going to come over the net and tell everyone I had a sore leg. So I, I managed to stay with, the, stay with the team, assess where the other parachutes were coming in against the wind. And my, my first challenge was to land it, because if I didn't land it correctly, you know, on one leg, you know, potentially you could you'd damage your good leg. So, but I did, it was a great, it was a great landing, landed one legged. <laughs> wow. Um, fortunately, the, the damage sustained on the exit shortened my career. So I tore my, my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus, my hamstring, my calf and my quadricep. So it was also all the, all the supporting muscles. Um, it's got ripped. Yeah, just got ripped. But, you know, the ideal world, you would go straight back, UK and you'd start physio you just start working on it um but it was the same time as the Icelandic volcano which had grounded all aircraft oh yeah so, um, I was there for about nearly nearly five weeks just thrown in a hotel with painkillers so that oh, initial you're kidding so there was period, yeah yeah I sort of missed that and then got back to UK got aeromedic back to UK 
got sent home for six weeks on leave. So now talking about 11, 12 week period from the injury. Then they lost my MRI scans. And it was just a spiral of, oh, of errors yeah. within the medical system there. And uh, mm. so, yeah, so I left you know, and all I'd ever known, you know, in 16 years was yeah. military. And then even as a young child growing up, so I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't look beyond the military. For me, I was a lifer. That was, that was me. Wow. So how did that, <clears throat> apart from the, the going to the physical injury, but how did that affect you mentally? Like you suddenly, <clears throat> you're at the top of your game, you've been training for this forever, you're doing your job, and then all of yeah. a sudden you're out of the game and you're completely yeah. sidelined. What, what 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 happened to you mentally from that side? You know, yeah, so yeah, you speak to my wife, she'll tell you a difference. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't get divorced, so that's good. No, no, no. but the, <laughs> you know, one of the things, it's called an identity crisis. Yeah, yeah. Gone, you know, and it's, it's whether you believe in the military, whether you're a professional sports person, yeah. or whether you're just someone who works in a, an organisation or, or a team. But I'd, I'd, be, I'd gone from working in a tight-knit unit, having a role, having a purpose, knowing what I was doing for the next two years, to like, where do I now fit in wow. society? What yeah. is my now role and purpose? But I got to where I got to because of my physical robustness. That had now been taken away from me as well. I couldn't even run 100 meters wow. without my leg uh, being in pain. So I had that going on in the background. Also, to add to the pressure, my wife was eight months pregnant. So oh. also wondering whether you know, there's going to be any work there. How am I going to support my family? Mm-hmm. But thankfully for me, my wife is very entrepreneurial you know you hear horror stories of men and women when they leave the military about their transition yeah quite turbulent yeah you know, quite smooth you know the military are like your mother and father you know they clothe you they feed you they pay you on time yeah. you know you don't even know what who provides the water or the heat yep. you just no. got a job, a job to do but we when we leave we're not aware of who we need to speak to in the councils or or the, or the state to, yep. to, to this so my wife was a, a bank manager for three uh, Santander banks in, in Aberdeen. So the stuff that I would normally be worrying about, she was like, yeah, I've got, I've got all that. Um, and she set up my our first uh, security company on a BlackBerry watching TV, you know. I was like, wow. I've done the right paperwork. So, um, so although I was going through a hard time, having to sort of personally, you know, thankfully it wasn't that bad because my wife had sort of was, was supporting. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as I said, you know, talk about secure industry, you know, the pressure of trying to, if there's any work. And I was very fortunate within 48 hours, I was, um, I was asked if I can go out to, to Libya, which I know you're, you're, you're familiar with, um, to um, help set up the DFID project, which is part of the British Embassy during the Arab Spring. And so, and so that's what I did. So wow. for me, I had work straight away and I was out uh, in Benghazi helping set up uh, that project. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Because that, that sounded like a bit of a movie story, that one. <laughs> I, you know, so for me, I did, when I left, I wanted to find a niche within the security industry. I didn't want to go to Afghanistan and Iraq and do the, the hostile Standard, uh, yeah because I'd sort of done that, you know, I'd, I'd done that bit and, you know, I was very lucky that I'd survive. So why would you take a, another risk? And I looked at the security industry and actually a lot of my friends from the special boat service, they were, they had their maritime companies who were dealing with the, uh, the piracy off the East coast of yep. Africa. So I didn't want to be competing with them either. My wife's from Aberdeen. So I moved back to, 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 to Scotland with her and mm-hmm. it's the oil and gas capital of Europe. So, 
where there's oil, there's trouble. Um, so I was, I was um, so I was looking more at the corporate clothes protection sort of industry. That's where my my head was focused. But when I got to Libya, I soon identified that Libyans didn't want Libya being another Afghan or Iraq. Once Gaddafi had fallen, no, they wanted to take control. But also these larger security companies, the big, I call them the big five, um, who sort of like dominate the industry. They. Mm-hmm were charging crisis management and evacuation plans when actually when you scraped the surface, there was nothing in place. Wow. So I, um, I flew home. My wife gave birth to our daughter, Molly, and I said, look, I, ha- I have a plan. Do you mind if I take our savings out of the bank? And, and that's what I did. And I, I went back into Libya, and there was a huge proliferation of weapons at this point. Um, it was actually the ammunition was difficult to get hold of. Weapons was not a problem. So I bought 30 weapons off the black market, and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt. Um, and buried them with communications equipment, money, and wow. just designed my own evacuation plan. Spent a month in the desert, wow. these and designing. And I, I mean, I sold them to a couple of the oil and gas companies on a retainer, and just just sat on them. I mean, the security industry, you know, for me, I didn't, I didn't want to work for an organization and be on rotation and, and, and things like that. I, 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 was, I took a gamble, and it was very ad hoc. So. Each time I got a phone call was a different, a different job. So, you know, for example, we did London Olympics and then, you know, next thing you're taking the UAE Royal Family Supiot from Barcelona to Maldives, you know, wow. one phone call and you're training the Kurdish Special Forces in Erbil. To, wow. Like, so Fascinating. Very, yeah, it's very diverse. When you tell people you're in the security industry, I think they think you're a doorman from the local nightclub. <laughs> no. It's no, surely industry. not. <laughs> yeah, and I like to help people as well. And and for me, but what it what it was good for me was is I was seeing some of this, the countries that I've been to anyway with the military, but seeing all the cultures and seeing how things are not from a military perspective because it was almost a little bit blinkered there, you know. We, yes, yeah. Like you say, you had your role, and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was understanding more the, the politics, the demographics, and and things like that. So. I'd just come back from the London Olympics. I was in Benghazi and the evening the American ambassador got killed. Oh. And they made a, yeah, they made a film called 13 Hours. And, yes, uh, that's what I thought. That yeah. sounds very familiar. Like, I'm sure I've yeah, seen this movie. So I, 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 know, I always say right, right place, right time or wrong place, wrong time. And I was there in Benghazi and I was asked by a German oil company if I could get some of their German engineers from Benghazi to Tripoli. So I had safe houses in the desert. And that's what I did over the three days. I, I took him uh, back to Tripoli. Yeah, and then two, wow. I mean, two years later, I was in Brazil covering the World Cup. You uh, just, you just like the spring. Oh, you just got them out through a whole like, like you do that, like going to the supermarket. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, there was no real, there was no real, um, no threat to them, no direct threat to them. The only, the only issue I had with that, with that one, you know, we could have, I had drivers from Benghazi who took us out initially, you know, the problem you got in Libya, you have 167 tribes. Um, and, and this is where there's, there's real issues in, yeah. in the country because I mean, you have, you know, those, those in the uh, East in Benghazi don't like those in the West in Tripoli, you know, the, the politics are in, are in Tripoli, the oils in the, in the East. Um, so it's understanding yeah. that as well. And, and that's why, so we did it over three days. And the reason we did that is I was actually, I had the drivers from Benghazi in the in the safe house, and they're like, "Well, you know, Mr. Dean, we 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 can go on because Tripoli's only, you know, it's not far, you know, like three hundred kilometers." 
but I did, they didn't realize that I had drivers coming in from Tripoli. You didn't want them to mix. Because I didn't want the drivers to compromise us when we go in. So I woke up the morning that we were, we were setting off and the drivers had arrived from Tripoli, the drivers from Benghazi there, they all had their guns out. And oh, my like, God. I said, look, I, I, think, I think they're worried they weren't going to get paid. I said, no, you're, you're paid. I just can't take you yeah. to Tripoli. And, and so it's just understanding that sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that you, rather than just driving as fast as you could to Tripoli and potentially running into issues along the way. Wow. And so, yeah, so that was a success. And then two years later, um, I was in Brazil covering the World Cup. And we now had the Tripoli War, which is a civil war between the militias and the government. Uh, and I think that's just just ended now, you know, nearly uh, seven wow. years later. And I got a phone call from the Canadian embassy saying that they'd been stuck in in uh in Tripoli in, in Vatican wow. so they had 18 military with them and they had a close protection team with them but they 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 weren't allowed to leave the city so they'd never seen the coastal road out and didn't have really eyes on so in the days leading up to that the British embassy got shot at every checkpoint between Tripoli and the Tunis border so I went out with my fixer and um you know just spoke to the tribal elders in those regions Zawara and, and, and everywhere else and it, it was actually just showing them courtesy and respect, just letting them know who we, are, who we were, when we were coming, that we were no threat. And again, it's that understanding the politics mm. and the demographics, which, which was the success of that. And yeah, we got 18 military and four diplomats safely back to, back to Tunis. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, I've never, sounds very sexy in Hollywood, but I never needed to dig up any of the weapons. They're, they're still there. You know? They're still on the... It's more of an intelligence-led security thing but um but yeah i came home from that trip and you know my normal procedure would be to you know wash my kit you know repack my bag and and everything else and then get ready for the next phone call yeah one of my, one of my shirts was was covered in blood where i've been doing uh first aid at an rta and i said to my wife can we get the blood out of the shirt she said yes but i'm more concerned in why there's blood in there <laughs> told her what i what i'd just done which have you heard yourself it's like a throwaway comment yeah this was the second time in my life that i realized the pin dropped you know there was something wrong mentally you know i i was this is five years now from the military and i was trying to match the adrenaline rush that i had yeah without coming to terms with the fact that i'd left and i didn't have that support network if something had gone wrong i I, my friends weren't going to come in and parachute for me and and, and exactly so something had to change, and um, my you know my daughter was young, and my wife now, has, you know, she had a very successful property development business, and she said, "Look, you know, it was actually all about communication." She thought I wanted to go away, and I thought she needed me to go away. In yeah, fact. yeah, because you've been used to that sort of setup yeah. for so long. Yeah, and I'd just been disconnected from society. I just thought that was the norm. You know, I was going to Somalia on my own, Yemen wow. on my own, just doing just doing these jobs. Were you were you not like you know, like most people listening to this? I mean, it's such a foreign world for the average person who's never been exposed to any of any of this, uh, and I've never been anything military. I've been in some tricky situations, uh, you know, self and self caused, <laughs> going into shit places I wasn't ready for or shouldn't have been in. Um, but for most people, this is a terrifying thought to even go to some of these places, let alone to do the job that you do. Did you never? Did you never have a fear? Like, do you not have the normal fear responses that that most people have? 
No, I think I do. I think the problem we have in today's society is TV, is media. You know, it's very, you know, dramatized about these places. Now, I yeah. go to some of these places. I'll, I'll use Somalia as an example. I'll go there on my own and I'll, I'll walk from the airport to the hotel. I, I won't, because that's where the business is. That's where thing, things are happening. I mean, I've been, I, you know, yes, there's bad places and things go on, but it's no different from any city. You know, yes, there's a bit of a terrorist threat and things like that. But I've been, you know, <laughs> spearfishing south of Mogadishu in, in some of the most beautiful waters. You know, mm. I see parts of the country that people don't see. Um, yes. you no, know, I'm not naive to think there is no threat at all. You know, the success of a lot of my projects is having the right fixes and local influence. You know, um, the world's very quick to tarnish certain societies with one brush because of what they're seeing on TV. Yep. Where for me, they're the most hospitable people. Yep. You, know, you know, the Canadian Embassy, the... KCA Doitag and a few others, they wouldn't have been successful if it wasn't for the local people. The locals. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's where some of these security companies or individuals who think they can just come in with weapons and guys that uh, look like me are very arrogant to think they're gonna they're gonna do get away with it. And 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 it's just showing respect um and humility wow. to them. And, 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 and that's my approach to it. So yeah. I am obviously conscious there is a, there is a threat, and you know I have friends who and you can uh, handle yourself, you know, as well and things like that. But um, mm. yeah, I think. Uh, but you know, it's you, not as yeah. I know what you mean. Like when you go to some of these places, you have these preconceived ideas. And some of the places I've been to, uh, like Niger, I went to Niger, and I don't know if you know Niger, yeah. I don't even know how to yeah. say it properly. Niger, Niger, yeah. Niger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Never got that right. Uh, that was one place where I landed there and we were doing a 333k race through there. And uh, I did like go, oh shit, <laughs> this place yeah. is pretty damn scary. And, uh, and you know, you're running across the desert on your own. And there was a lot of military sort of, well, it was a, uh, a oil problem. Yeah, yeah, Chinese yeah. doing um, Chinese doing exploration in the desert against the wishes of the tribal people. So there was lots yeah. of military convoys coming through with all armed things, and you're a little girl running across the freaking desert on your own. Hey, eh? like it's pretty yeah, yeah, sure. pretty uh, hairy moments there where you think you can just disappear. Yeah, you know. But generally speaking, most of the places that you go to where you think are going to be terrifying aren't that terrifying. And the people are pretty amazing too. And you, you've got to be aware of yourself and, you, you know. Yeah, no, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I think mean, the, the responsibility, you know, those sort of places as well, if they're running an event like that, you know, you know those countries want, the, you know, it's all about tourism and trying to promote, put the country in a good light. You know, they'll do everything. Oh, this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This it's, one yeah. was a bit out there though. Like this was a ex, uh, French foreign legion guy who was Obviously. running it. And there was he didn't give a shit about anything except making money, right? So oh, really? <laughs> we we went into it naively, this particular one, um, thinking it was gonna be like the Marathon de Sables or something, you know what I mean? And it wasn't. <laughs> it was like seventeen runners, nothing was organized. It was like we ran out of water, we ran out of food, we you know, I ended up getting food poisoning on top of it all. Um, so that was a really uh yeah, it, that that that's when I realized that most of the races are really super well run, but then there are the cowboys out there. Um, yeah. And, you know, we were in our very heads, really, you know, and we were yeah. lucky to, to get out, out the other side on that one. But, um, you know, it, it is. But so how did you, like, like for your wife, what was it, what's it like having your, your husband 
off doing God knows what and, and having to keep the, you know, the, the, the business going, the, the life going yeah, and, 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 and feeling that fear of you being away, you know? Yeah, no, I'm very fortunate. You know, I've, I've got a, you know, my wife's part of the business anyway, the security business anyway, so she would always be doing the intelligence pictures anyway. So ha- having her, her being part of that helps. Yeah. Well, rather than you just go in and she's not knowing what's going on and yeah. then coming back, you know, having her part of that. And when we talk about the bike ride, you know, she was the campaign director for that. So sounds amazing. She gets involved in in, in everything because then it's very easy to explain why you're doing something or why you're going away because yeah. you have the full picture. Um, but no, very very fortunate to have a, an understanding. And she, you know, Alana's got a book coming out soon as well. And she talks about you know why she fell in love with me because you know you know I. I showed her a world that she hadn't seen before. I mean, I was very, you know, we had very similar mindsets and like achieve whatever goals you want. So for her to then say I couldn't do something or, you know, go against, you know, what she thinks. Be about yeah, and why we got together. So, yeah, so um, obviously now I'm a bit older and we've got kids and obviously I, I need to be a bit, you know, she, she, she reigns me in a little bit more, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she sounds like an amazing lady. I'll have to get her on. <laughs> yeah, 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 she is. She's got, she's got a cracking story herself. Yeah, she sounds like it. Um, so I want to transition now into going into, like, you know, life uh, after this sort of, you know, chapter of your life, if you like, and, and, and becoming this professional adventurer. Because yeah. and, and what you're doing now, what you've got coming up, and and, and the whole uh, world record that you have. Tell us about that big adventure. Yeah, so it actually stemmed from coming back from that that uh, Canadian embassy job. You know, something had to change. Yeah. And, and chapter 16 in the vo- in the book's called Dead or Divorce. So that's the stage we're at in, in here. And <laughs> talking about, obviously, it's been five years since my leaving the military. I'd sort of neglected my own sort of physical and mental well-being. I've been so fixated on work and, and, and bringing money in. I, I, I take like a TRX with me around, you know, just throw it in the suitcase, but I hadn't done any sort of cardiovascular stuff. My injured leg now was two kilos lighter than my good leg because wow. of the wastage. So I just bought, Alana said, look, come come do property developing with her. And, I, and that's what I did. I hung up my security boots and um, just bought a push bike off Amazon, just cycled to and from the office. It was only about eight miles there mm-hmm. and eight miles back you know nothing big but straight away being physically active again you know I felt like there was a big big weight off my shoulders and uh and and, and that's what I did I just cycled to and from the office but you can imagine my story you know sat in these architects and planners meetings and that <laughs> so it was about a month before my 40th birthday um so I was getting having a midlife crisis having yep. ground about uh, what, what have I done with my life? I'm going to have a legacy and, and things like that. So I said, well, I've always fancied doing a world record. <laughs> and Alana said, well, what in? And I said, well, well cycling is good because it's not, it's not impacting my, I had to be considerate of my, my knee injury. Um, and something that wasn't, the knee injury wasn't going to have an, a um, compromise it. So I, I said, well, what about cycling? And, you know, being in Scotland, I was thinking maybe like Aberdeen to Glasgow or something. And, and my wife then found the world's longest road which runs from southern Argentina to, to northern Alaska. Um, <laughs> so for the listeners, it's probably the equivalent of, it's the equivalent of cycling from London to Sydney. Yeah. And then it's 4,000 miles. And then another. Yeah, and then shit. another because of the curvature of the earth. So having only cycled 20 miles, that's what I did. I applied for the world record to begin it. We had looked at Cairo to Cape Town, um, but I majority of my security work was in Africa. So I'd been yeah. to those places anyway. So for me, I wanted to 
as part of the challenge, I wanted to see places that I hadn't, some places that I hadn't been to before. Um, and also because of the, because of where you're starting and where you're finishing, you're going through all different temperatures and climates and things like that. And yeah, so Guinness came back and will record when I applied for it was 125 days. Six weeks later when they came back, said you were successful on the application. It had already been beaten by eight wow. days. The new wheel record was 117 days. Wow. Um, so that was my that was my target. And my wife and I do a lot of charity work. Uh, we, we we have been doing since since I met her really. And uh, you know, we do a lot of stuff with the military. You know, as part of the special boat service ambassador for Scotland and um, an wow. ambassador for awesome. British Legion, which is the oldest military charity in UK. But I'm going to name drop now massively. So Prince Harry and I are good friends and we've known each other. <laughs> as you do. Yeah, as you do. So him and I have been good friends for about 14 years, met each other on the military training course. And, you know, he'd come to some of my events. I've been to some of his events. You know, I, in Mozambique, in Tanzania, I had an intelligence fusion cell which would identify smuggling routes for the ivory, you know, which I could then relay back to him. So I was doing a lot of stuff in the background. So I rang him up and I said, look, in a cycle, the world's longest road, you know, what campaign should we do it for? And this is back in 2016. So mm-hmm. him and his brother and Kate were just about to launch a, a mental health campaign called Heads Together in 2017. And he said, would I do it for that that campaign? And I said, yes, of course. So I now had the challenge, awesome. now I had the campaign. Um, and yeah, and I set a target of a million a million pounds. Wow, that's a big ass target. Yeah. <laughs> well, for me, it had to be the enormity of the challenge had to reflect how much you're trying to raise. You know, you yeah. couldn't, you know, you can't go, you can't say I'm going to raise a million pounds and run the London Marathon because it, it just doesn't add up. But the size of the challenge and the size of the ask here, you know, w- was balanced. And also to add to that, that I'd never cycled before as well, which is even more of a... Mental, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I did, <laughs> I, trained, I trained for a year. You can imagine what it was like trying to get sponsorship at the beginning. I was like, oh, I've Who are you? Cycled. What the hell? Yeah, never cycled before. I'm going to break a world record and raise a million pounds in mental health. I think a lot of them thought I had mental health problems myself. But, <laughs> but you had a track record of what you'd done. I mean, I, I would have taken you seriously as far as them. You know, a lot of people say to me, how do you get sponsorship? You know, because I, I got a great yep. sponsor. You know, and it was just, it was the right messaging at the right time. You know, the Heads Together campaign had just launched in the UK and it was very much the topic of conversation. So a lot of these big corporates you know, wanted to get behind. behind Wonderful. Yep. Yeah. So it was the right messaging at the right time. And uh, yeah, I got a great sponsor and, which, you know, but that was only about two months before I was setting off. You know, I'd, I'd funded it. I funded 50,000 of my own money up until then. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had to believe in it and I had to it's believe put something it on the line. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so that's what it did. Yeah. I mean, I set off on the 1st of February, 2018. The, when I was doing all the, at the early stages when I was doing the planning and you know, I'd, I'd never cycled before, I just took a military set of orders, put it on there and just crossed out ammunition. And then as I started learning about cycling, I, I then introduced that into the plan. Um, but there's things that, you know, there were things that were out of my control, but natural disasters, coups, third-party influence. So the world record was 117 days, but I was aiming for 110, and it wasn't because I wanted to beat it by a week. I wanted to you give us that buffer. buffer, yeah, the yeah. fudge, we call it. Yeah, the yeah. fudge. Yeah. You didn't count that. It's eating into the fudge and not and not your um, your challenge. So that's, that's why I, I, where I, I set off with aiming for 110 days. Um, wow. You know, I, I, I was very fortunate to 
being in the military and worked in the desert, the Arctic, um, and the jungle and things like that, but I'd never done it on a bike. You know, I had to then simulate those <laughs> situations. So the Atacama Desert in Chile is the driest non-popular desert in the world. It was, it was 47 degrees when I was cycling through. So I went out to Dubai and did two weeks heat training in Dubai. Um, the altitude in Ecuador, I was cycling, you know, the biggest climbs in Tour de France range between 21 23 kilometers mine was 67 kilometers from sea level to four and a half thousand meters so i had to again train at altitude so i know that I, on the day of the event you know you, you yep. can do eight to ten hours on the bike non-stop. altitude too yeah. yeah so um yeah did that and there's a famous bike ride in uk called land's end john o'groats yes i know that one yeah so i um i did that twice um sound i, ne- I never mean to sound arrogant but for me it was a training ride and i had yeah. to as a train ride because the challenge was 15 lands end on a growth back to back so if i couldn't do one how was i going to do yeah 15 it's yeah. funny how your perception changes the bigger your your current goal that you're going for the other yeah. stuff becomes small but um what, what i've learned too is it goes the other way as well when you stop you know uh doing the big stuff your horizon comes back in pretty quickly and yeah. then you know it can be a Going the other way. <laughs> you can never replicate what you're going to do with some of your ultra marathons. You wouldn't go run the exact distance. No, you know? no, never. So you, you just, never any near it. <laughs> just interrupting the program briefly to let you know that we have a new patron program for the podcast. Now, if you enjoy pushing the limits, if you get great value out of it, we would love you to come and join our patron membership program. We've been doing this now for five and a half years and we need your help to keep it on air. It's been a public service free for everybody and we want to keep it that way. But to do that, we need like-minded souls who who are on this mission with us to help us out. So if you're interested in becoming a patron for Pushing the Limits podcast, then check out everything on patron.lisatamati.com. That's P-A-T-R-O-N dot We have two patron levels to choose from. You can do it for as little as $7 a month New Zealand or $15 a month if you really want to support us. So we, we are grateful if you do. There are so many membership benefits you're going to get if you join us. Everything from workbooks for all the podcasts, the strength guide for runners, uh, the power to vote on future episodes, uh, webinars that we're going to be holding, all of my documentaries and much, much more. So check out all the details, patron.lisatamati.com and thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, what I got from doing those Land's End John O'Groats, you know, I did in about nine days is the, is the fact that the first four or five days are always, whether you're at your peak or whether you're below peak, is always going to be hard. Yep. And then, you know, but by the end of the first week, your, your body then knows what it's asking, you're asking of it. Um, I found that like too when I did because I ran through New Zealand and I did uh, you know 2,250 k's in 42 days which I was aiming for 33 days but I again I didn't add in the fudge did I Uh, (laughs) and I got slower and slower and more injuries and so on so it took me a bit longer than I was planning but the the at the two week point was when I was at the absolute like I don't know how to take the next step oh really 
point, yeah, yeah. you know. And somehow I like I had to drop the kilometers a little bit, but then I was able to my body actually got better from that point on. And I would never have believed if I hadn't lived through it that I thought I was like absolutely I don't know the how I'm gonna take the next step to then actually at the end of the forty two days being like I could carry on now, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it was quite a phenomenal thing to go through. And I've heard other expeditions that are athletes go through the same sort of thing, that, that it bottoms out at the worst point. Like I've got a couple of mates who ran across the Sahara, and I mean, I mean right, right across the Sahara, yeah, 7,000 kilometres. And they had the same thing, that they, you know, two weeks in, they were thought, you know, we're about to die here. <laughs> we're not going to make it. And then it's sort of, you know, and you have your ups and downs, but – if you can push through that mentally, that point, you seem to come through it, eh? Yeah, yeah, you do. I, I think, um, you know, for me, I, I set off from, well, sort of going back slightly. When I was doing my research, I, you know, I was reading books and magazines, learning about cycling. You know, it evolved so much since I was a young boy in a BMX. And uh, I wasn't getting the, the information I, I, I really wanted. So I spoke to the previous record holders, you know, very open, yeah. which was great. Awesome. I, was, I was really... They're, they're very receptive, but they, you know, one of the things we do in the military, especially special forces, is um, it's, it's like it's a hot debrief. So when, as soon as you've done a job or an operation, you, you come yep. on, and you don't, before you get sort yourself out, you know, we'll sit down and we'll we'll ask three questions: what worked, what didn't work, and if you're going to do it again, what would you do differently? So I just asked that question to the previous record holders, and all their issues were in South and Central America. Bureaucracy at the borders, languages, spares to the bikes. So they all started in North America, and it was the second half of the challenge which had the issues. Right. So I turned it on its head. I was like, mm. well, I'm going to start in the south and get those issues out of the way early. So that was yep. one thing I was quite proud of. Just because everyone did it that way didn't mean it was the right, the right way. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, but I set off from southern Argentina, and the first week, you know, relentless uh, the, of the winds. It was like 40 mile an hour cross. <laughs> I've never known anything like it. But but once started. I had targets each day, you know, what I had to hit each day, and I was hitting those targets. I think by the end of the first week, I was 39 miles behind target, but my target was still a week ahead of the world record. Right, yeah, yeah. Then the weather sort of changed for the better. You know, the winds had subsided. I got through Peru. I got a tailwind all the way through Peru. That's 2,500 kilometers of tailwind. Wow. We did, you know, I crashed the bike in Chile. I got food poisoning in Peru, you know, it didn't come without his issues. And, uh, you know, got to Ecuador, did the big climbings. But before I'd gone on the challenge, I'd never done more than 150 miles on the road. On the road. I'd done 10 hours on a turbo trainer, but never done more than 150 miles. By the week four, when I was in Peru, anything less than 150 miles wasn't enough for me. I was wow. getting physically and mentally stronger as I went. I started... At 90 kilos, I, I was, I, everyone's like, ah, it's too big. Yeah, but, but you needed. Yeah, but I knew from my time in the military, like special forces selection, six months long, you don't start day one 100% fit. You carry a bit of timber and weight, and then that will shed, and then you'll get fit. And, and, that, and that's what I did. And, um, you know, when I finished, I weighed 78 kilos. So I wow. lost 12 kilos from the So yeah. I had to, yeah, as you know, when you're ultra man, it's almost like a polar expedition. You, you're losing weight from the start. So you just need to try and try and keep it on. But I got to Cartagena on day 48 on March the 21st. I took 10 days off the previous world record for South America. Um, but that wasn't the world record. A lot of people called me and said, oh, that's it, the pressure's off. I was like, well, that's not the world record no. I wanted. 
call it a brutey bonus. That was a brutey bonus or a a marker to aim for rather than looking at the full challenge. Yep. yep. As you as you all know, you don't look at the No, no. Break down into you will get overwhelmed pretty quick. Yeah, you, you wouldn't get on the flight. You know? yeah. <laughs> so I did, I broke it into into countries, into days, and then broke the days into four stages. Yep. Nutrition and hydration were, were, were paramount. So just have a big breakfast and then just cycle as fast as I could for two hours. You know, I didn't, I then just get off the bike for 30 minutes, um, have food and water, and then I'm back on the bike. I was, I was disciplined in my timings. It was 30 mm-hmm. minutes, it wasn't 30 minutes, and then chat to someone or have no. a selfie with a llama. You know, it was like back on the bike. And That's key. That's yeah, key, that. Those, that, that creepage then gets bigger yep. later on and then it was just look at the next two hours look at the next stage I didn't look at the afternoon didn't look at the next day and before you've done it you've done a day you've done a week you've done a world record and wow. um, so that's how I I, I I did it so I was just doing four training rides a day I wasn't doing a world record <laughs> uh, I love that he just chunked that down into bite-sized pieces that you could manage yeah. You can manage. And then I, you know, you see people when they do that, a lot of people doing their challenges and they're like, well, you know, I'm 10 miles behind today. You know what? I'll I'll catch that up tomorrow, but you don't know what's going to happen. You could have another bad day and then be 20 to 30 miles behind. So, so for me to be in the, in the right headspace mentally, I, I, I made sure I hit my target. So I was ahead of target. So after that first week, I was 39 miles behind target. From then on, I was, way ahead wow. so i was in a good headspace at the end of the day knowing that i was You'd hit way your mark. where I, I should be because as you probably accounted with your new zealand when you know that you've set a target and you're not you may not get there it can start messing oh i did yeah yeah head. it does um, yep so for me i always say to people just stay on the bike or do those run an extra two or three just just hit the target you set for the day because you mentally you're going to be in a better yeah, because you get that nice dopamine hit then, eh? That that neurotransmitter dopamine that gives you that little reward and that motivates you to do the next round and keeps you going, you know. Yeah. Next morning, you know, you're not right, I've got to do thirty miles before I yeah. get to that. You know, you're you're where you should be or ahead. Uh, and it ahead. starts to overwhelm yeah. you, eh? When you're starting to go backwards. That's yeah, I found that pretty yeah, I mean I used to trick myself in the fact that or give myself a treat. So I had like four stages for South North America. We'll talk in a minute. That's a different way of cycling. But for South America, because of the security issues, you know, I had a support team and a documentary team with me who are very much risk averse, more risk averse than myself. You know, yeah. we stay on, but I had to consider their welfare. And so we were cycle. I would cycle from first light to last light. That's, so that was my debt. That was the, my, my cycling period. And um, the, uh, so, yeah, I broke it into four stages. So in the morning was fine because I just had a breakfast. So the first two hours, I'd be able to gauge how long I'll be on the bike for the day. Because unlike when other people go for bike rides at home, they'll go for a ride and they'll do a loop and they'll come home. So at some point, they'll have a, a headwind or a tailwind or a sidewind. But on this ride, if I had a headwind, it was all day. <laughs> yeah. sidewind, it was all day. So that would really it would gauge you gauge for, the, for the rest of the day. So that was the first stage. The second stage, I had lunch to look forward to. Um, the third stage, uh, sorry, the fourth stage, I had the end of the day to look forward to. The third stage, I had nothing to look forward to. So I would make sure, uh, so my look forward was a can of Coke or an ice cream. Yes. Which is something simple. Yep. I had something to look forward to after the, the two hours. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's that reward thing, eh? You just need yeah, that little, yeah, I'm, I'm going for yeah, something. Yeah. 
I've got something there rather than just, oh, I've got another two hours after that. I, I, I'd find that sometimes my reward, and this is getting like pretty sad, like, yeah. Oh, I, I, I'm going to be allowed to go to the toilet, you know, like <laughs> I'm going to have a wee. <laughs> and then like, shit, life's pretty, pretty shit when you're <laughs> literally, when that's, that's your reward. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need, you need to probably look at your, look inwards a bit more. Like <laughs> what the hell am I doing? Yeah. And so, you know, because I, I watched the little short, and can, can people watch the documentary yet? Is it out yet? Is it available anywhere? Yeah, yeah no, it's, no. So we, we've got the footage. We've got all the all the footage together. Um, you know, we, 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 the sort of plan is is um, is maybe because we'll talk about the next challenge shortly. Yeah, bolting it onto that and doing a double uh, a double. Wow. May do it. Do a series of them. Um, wow. So yeah, we're, we're we're sitting on that, which which is good. But yeah, I I, I took. You know, I broke the South America world record, which is great. And um, from from a cycling perspective, you know, it was a great decision going south north. From a logistics perspective, it wasn't. We're having to change vehicles in every country in South wow. America, which was slowing me up. So we bought an RV in a four by four, which was going to get shipped from Fort Lauderdale to Panama, and and that would then take us all the way to Alaska. Because I had to fly from Colombia to Panama. There's a daring gap which you can't cross. That's the only bit you uh, you have to fly, and um, I was in Ecuador two weeks before my wife, Alana, rang me and told me it hadn't, the vehicles hadn't been loaded on the container. They were still oh. stuck in Florida. Oh, God. So my wife, my PA, and a couple of my friends, thankfully they had foresight, and they flew out, and they drove the vehicles 4,000 miles in eight days from Florida through Mexico all the way through Central America Man. to Panama. That's so dedication. Broke, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, so when I broke the record in the morning, flew across, they, they came in an hour late and handed over the keys. So that then really helped us for the second part of the, of the challenge. Um, I got to North America on day 70, and I was 14 days ahead. I was like, perfect. You know what I mean? I can, you know, I can take the foot off the gas, or I can have a day's rest here or there. And then my wife kept bringing me. And, you know, she's very good in keeping all those distractions away from me. So my initial thought was my children, there was something wrong with the kids. And then she told me we've been kindly invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding. Oh, shit. Changed the dynamics completely of the challenge. So for oh, me wow. to get home, I had to be finished by day 102, which was 15 days ahead of the challenge. So going into the challenge, uh, going into the phone call, I was 14 days ahead. Ten minutes later, I'm now a day behind. Oh, Doesn't my God. Matter. It doesn't matter what you've done. That's been taken from you. So, like, so yeah, mixed mixed emotion cycling off from that phone call. Um, yeah, like excited yeah. for the wedding. Shit, I've got to go faster. Yeah, and then I got to Lubbock in Texas the next day. We had 60-mile-an-hour winds and tornadoes, so I was stuck for another 24 hours. So I was now two days behind. And there was an app on your phone called Windy TV. I don't know if you've come across it. It gives you, like, the strength and directions of the winds every hour for the next two weeks. About 95% wow. accurate. It's really, it was wow. like my second wife on the challenge. But just, <laughs> Windy TV. I was looking at Windy TV. But unlike South America, when I said I was cycling from first light to last light, in North America we had the luxury of um, – Run a bit longer security yeah you know, cycle at night so i took advantage of that and i just played to get out of lubbock i had to cycle 340 miles in 36 hours to miss the next weather window coming in oh. and i just played chess with mother nature through through north america i had 17 days planned and i cycled it in 11 and a half days and I got oh, to canada they also used it to my advantage i picked up a tailwind in in cheyenne in wyoming and did 260 miles in 11 hours with 10,000 feet of climbing because I had a 50 mile an hour tailwind. Um, some luck and some. 
exactly. So it's, it's talk about having a plan, but having to change the plan to the situation on the ground. And then I got a week outside and I was like, ah, right, <laughs> this will record smashed. Uh, I'll be back in time for this wedding unless I get eaten by a grizzly because we're now in Canada and Alaska. <laughs> and um, and then I was made aware about this professional cyclist who's got three other endurance world records. He's like tw- 26 years old, sponsored by all Red Bull, all the brands. And he'd come out and, on social media that day and said that he was going to do the Pan American Highway in August and be the first man to do it under 100 days. So oh, that just nice. changed the dynamics completely for me. So Again. Yeah, so I just cycled, you know, every time I, I thought I'd hit my objective, the objective then kept moving. So I um, I cycled for, for 22 hours in the last 30 hours in minus 18 to come oh, in in 99 days, 12 hours and 56 minutes. So it wasn't the original plan. It's it just how sort of... Um, way faster. Yeah, yeah. And um, and it, I couldn't tell anyone I'd been invited to the wedding. You can see friends commenting like that he's picked this right up, you know, he's, he's now, he's going, and people said, oh, he's rushing back for his mate's wedding. I, I couldn't tell him. Yeah. Um, so I just had to, had to do it. But my family were in, uh, Alain and the kids had flown into Prudhoe Bay, which is a, it's an oil field on the top of the Arctic Ocean. You know, they'd come in with all these like oil workers who'd never seen kids there. Like, oh, what's going on? And uh, <laughs> so I knew they, I knew they were there um at the end so that was that final bit of motivation oh um, yeah and, and, and when you're in that last spurt before the thing it's like i just get this shit done <laughs> you can get over the damn line <laughs> even, even like the last day last two days i had 250 miles to do and i thought well i'll do 150 miles today and then leaves me 100 miles on the last day and i'm well in under the um under the 100 days so i did the first 50 miles and got to this roadblock uh, at wow. noon and they were like, ah, no, you can't pass till eight o'clock tonight. So it took eight hours off my oh. So I, 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 got, I got into the RV and again, I just put pen to paper even on the last day. But thankfully, because it landed in midnight sun, it doesn't get dark. And I said, well, it's eight o'clock tonight. I will cycle until I get there. And I cycled till seven o'clock the next evening. Um, but doing about eight, nine mile an hour because the winds were so strong. Oh my gosh. Making sure I was taking in coffee every couple of hours to stay hydrated. So... Even to the very last day, the plans. Yeah, that's that's insane. (laughs) Yeah, we we crossed the line, you know, uh, from any cyclists out there. You know, it worked out 99 days. So I had 90, I had five days off, three due to weather and two logistics. So it was 94 days of cycling, uh, which was 147 miles a day. Um, I lost 12 kilos in weight. Um, The average speed was 16.8 mile an hour, which was fast because it was just short sharp um sessions and um more more impressively was the uh, was the money we raised we raised over 1.2 million dollars or 900,000 you're kidding me that is insane yeah wow but, um, congratulations that's good uh, yeah, the of that was through corp, uh, corporate donors and sponsors you know my yeah. pr team were like ah, you know this guy's showing no emotion they like to see people suffering in tears <laughs> their hands in their pockets but for me i was trying to promote you know the unrelenting pursuit of excellence if you're going to do something you do it to the best of your ability so me crying on on the camera wasn't wasn't gonna wasn't gonna happen Um, (laughs) there was a few there was a few tantrums on there right yeah um, but that was it yeah so i never looked you know we we came back two days later we had the royal wedding which sort of then for me overshadowed everything i did you know all the press 
was like, how was the wedding? I was like, really? I'm just smashing just... the kids. And, you know, they That's care. a bit sad, really, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I wish I'd had a bit of time to sort of absorb what I'd done and, and, and achieved. You know, I was still just getting used to being with my family, never mind. No, go back Bloody to Harry and Megan, they could have waited another week for you to get your uh, shit together exactly. and go. <laughs> exactly. so, um, like, what were they you know, thinking? The world's press doing, you know, 11 yeah. interviews each day. And so, yep. you, know, it, you know, it adds, you know, we talk about it, you'll know as well, but you you have a, a depression when you come back. You, yeah. You need paper and, and things like that. You know, for me, I had two highs in one week and then it was like, pff, it was nothing. Yep. But we had... We had a big fundraiser six weeks later and Harry came, you know, did a Q&A session on stage and we raised oh, a lot wow. of money. So that was my sort of short-term focus after after the uh, the bike ride. I, you know, I was supposed to taper my training. I did a 10-mile bike ride to the coffee shop and, you know, when I when I came back, you know, I'm very objective. I need to have a target or something to, to go for. So for, just to go cycle 10 miles wasn't... On the way back, these three cyclists spotted me. Like that, oh, I'm sure that's that lad. And I yeah, just yeah. ended up eating my PB for that straight. So I knew I wasn't actually going to be tapering. So I just put the bike in the garage just, and didn't and lift really, it. Yeah. I mean, that's really, you know, like um, if we could just touch on the, the mental health side of it afterwards, because, yeah, like that's something that I've found after every big thing that I've done, especially when it's been an overseas environment and some out of it place or something. And you come back and you're like, you come back to your family, especially when your family not involved, and they're yeah. like everybody else is just going about their normal business, and you're like just like, yeah, yeah, buddy. you know, like, yeah. I, I, do, do you know what I just did and experienced? And everyone's like, oh, that's nice, darling, and you're like, <laughs> you know, it's really, I found that quite, um, quite uh, devastating at times where, where mm. when your family just didn't get and you feel like a fish out of water sort yeah. of like have this bit of a crisis of what and you also have a crisis of like what is my what is my role in life like when you got out of the army it's like well hang on yeah. my whole bloody safety net of who the heck I am and the framework that I've built just suddenly been taken from me now what the heck I am and and then you've gone and become this adventure athlete and doing this crazy sort of stuff so you've filled that that void if you like yeah yeah um and, and like um uh, w- with my mum's story you know the the same book name that we've got like that was relentless that was I was suddenly thrown into this new world of like I'm no longer an athlete. You know, I couldn't be a full time. Or I was I was always, yeah, yeah. always working, but I was an athlete at the same time. Um, and now it was just mum. You know, like full board to rehabilitate her, or she's going to die. So yeah. you you but you adapt. Everything becomes the the ability of the human mind and body. You go through a transition phase, but you, you learn to adapt. And some you know. For a couple of years, I found it hard. It's like, who the heck am I if I'm not that anymore yeah. and I'm not doing that? But you have other priorities. It's like you, you've got kids now and stuff and you yeah, don't want to yeah. be in dangerous situations. Yeah. Is I was, that I was, still evolving? Yeah, I was probably used to that because of the time in the military. You know, when we were – it was the same sort of situation. You'd be away on tour and you'd come yeah. back. Everyone's just going back there, yeah. back with their normal day-to-day business. And it's, there's no point in trying to talk. You know, so I was used to that anyway from the military and in the private security. I think where I'm, I'm lucky with Alana and the kids is that they get fully immersed in it. Yeah. So they're, they're part of that project as well. You know, That's so awesome. they come out to 
Uh, and then my daughter cut her hair. She had really long hair, cut her hair and raised a thousand pounds for the charity. So they really get wow. involved in everything. Alana does the campaign and the, and the fundraising. So it's not me and then the family coming back to the family. They're, yeah. they're, they're in that, that with me. So I think I'm very lucky in, yeah. in that yeah you are pretty lucky i reckon with your family you've got a pretty yeah, good well, bloody combo with your wife and yeah well, i generally believe that anyone and i don't mean to sound arrogant but anyone can break a will record if you take away all those distractions you know, yeah. the business the mortgage and things like that and, and then who's looking after the kids who's picking the kids up from school and all you've got to concentrate on is your i totally yeah. i totally hear you because i think that that's the that's the actual key to it you know when you've got the luxury and it is a luxury now not having that yeah. luxury um to be able to be a you know selfish athlete who can yeah. do what and can focus fully and then you can you can of course you're going to do crazy amazing things unfortunately yeah, yeah. life does come and chuck you know curveballs at you and you have to go with the flow you know but um it doesn't negate what i've decided too is like in reaching an age now you know like my body started to break to pieces by about 48 things were going better shaped yeah. <laughs> um, um is that that you know it doesn't negate what you did and, you know, because, you know, you sort of have this mentality, oh, I'm has been, I've, you know, I'm been there, done that. No, it's just like, hey, it's a new stage in your life and what is the challenge now? And there is some other big challenge that you're on. And you've got a big, speaking of big challenges, so you've got some other crazy mission coming up. Tell us about that yeah, before yeah, we wrap yeah. it up. So, so, yeah, my sort of, my unique selling point in, 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 um, in the Africa, athlete world is I take a sport or discipline I've never done before so <laughs> you know we've done the side and actually going back slightly when we when our sponsored marketing team did the uh, the SWOT analysis on the last oh, sorry that's right <laughs> there's mum ringing in the middle of my bloody podcast uh, relentless. <laughs> relentless the um <laughs> the strengths the weaknesses the opportunities and threats and the only weakness that came back was my arrogance towards the cycling community but you know, thankfully, no one ever said that, you know, but I took that as a strength. You know, it's that fire in the belly to say, well, you know, if that's what they think, then, yeah. you know, watch it. But no, luck it, no one no one ever said that anyway, so it was good. But, um, you know, now um, I've enjoyed cycling. I'm now going to be arrogant towards the kayaking community. <laughs> uh, I actually take that back. The kayaking community have been really, really great in coming around on, on this challenge. So, so I've cycled the world's longest road. The plan is now, or the plan is next year, 1st of February, I set off, is to kayak the world's longest river from source to sea, from Rwanda to Egypt, which has never been, been done before, as in paddled from one end to the other. There's been wow. stages, but never co completely. So 4,280 miles is that one. But unlike the last challenge, which was promoting mental health, um, you know, I'll still always be an ambassador and, and push the importance of physical activity and mental health. You know, this one, my wife's very um, passionate on modern slavery and human trafficking. And, yeah, uh, wow. Doing a lot in that in, in that area. But I didn't want to channel myself down just that one topic. So I've left it open. And so we're going to be talking about poverty, pollution, sustainability, conservation. Amazing. Um, Six-episode documentary. And, and really, for me, promote Africa. I, I We've talked about the security industry and how people see mm. continent. Mm from what they see on the TV. For me, it's my favorite continent. I, I love I love Africa. And I know the people don't have two coins to rub together, but they're probably the most friendliest, happiest, and hospitable people. Totally. Uh, totally. So I really want to sort of promote, promote that as well. And um, and it, unlike the bike rides, which was more physical, this is, you know, there's a lot more skill involved in, in this. You know, it's everything from 
flat water to grade six waterfalls. Y- yeah, isn't crocodiles. there some big waterfalls and stuff in there? You've got crocodiles, you've got hippos, you've got civil war in South Sudan. So <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna have its it's gonna have some issues along the way. You're going to have some more adventures and I can't wait to to hear all about those I have to actually connect you I had on the podcast last week a lady by the name a fellow countrywoman of yours uh, Laura Penhall Um, and Laura is um, she rode across the Pacific and she's a bit like you she didn't um, she never rode before (laughs) when she took on this challenge so she did it with three other ladies she got a team together um you have to have a listen and i'd love to connect you guys because she might be able to i mean it's a different rowing kayaking but you know uh pretty pretty phenomenal uh lady as well oh amazing yeah no please do yeah but i've 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 left this one open if anyone wants to come join me at any stages and more more than welcome you know we we approached guinness about it about being a world record and you know guinness um no one's ever done it before. So they just took the Amazon guidelines and dropped it on this, but Amazon's a different ri- river. Amazon's quite flat. And they said, oh, you're only allowed to use one boat. But if that was the case, I'd be, <laughs> carrying, I'd be carrying the boat halfway around. So we then changed it to self-propelled by paddle, which means I can use either a, a ocean ski, a creek boat or a raft. But actually then in reflection, looking at it, you know, when you do Guinness World Records, there's so many guidelines, yeah. guidelines you need to adhere to, which is fine when you're cycling on a road or, or something like that. But when, you're, when you're paddling the river, it's never been done before. I mean, there's civil war, there's animals that are going to eat you and things like you don't want to be you're gonna to have to make some key decisions and you don't want your decisions to be blurred because you've got to stick to these guidelines yeah. so actually we just pushed that out and said well we're not going to do it for world it's record. not about it first anyway we'll collate the date data but i don't want that to sort of hinder totally. any wrong decision mm. and, and i think it stands on its own guinness world record or not you know like that's not i don't know it's not yeah. so important. This is about the actual adventure yeah. you're going to go on. This is crazy. More about the adventure, yeah. So we can, uh, Dean. You know, I've, I'm, you know, I'm just absolutely fascinated by your mindset and the way that you approach things and all the the stuff that you do. And I'd love to have you on at an, another stage in the future and your wife, because I think yeah. we need a double episode to find out what the hell makes a lady like that. Yeah, tick as well. <laughs> um, but where can people follow you, m- m- get involved with your project, the next one that you've got coming up, your yeah. book, etc. So I'm, I'm on, obviously on social media. You know, social media for me was a taboo when I did the last <laughs> challenge because oh, special forces, like, you know, yeah. I now understand it's a platform where you need to be sort of promoting. So I, I am on Instagram uh, as Dean Stott, and then I'm, I am on Twitter at Dean Stott SBS and normal Facebook. And so I'll start. You know, later on in the year, you'll start seeing posts of me training and, you know, talk about my nutrition and things like that. Things I didn't really do before because I didn't think people were interested, but clearly <laughs> in, in that and in the mindset. So we have that. And then uh, the website, www.deanstock.com. Um, Dean Stock with two T's. Yeah. He's got the frogmen on there. And then you can, um, and, and we're going to be posting posting up there uh, as well. You can buy the book from there or you can get the book from, from Amazon or Audio. Um, and it's got the same title as mine. So buy both Relentless books, people, when you're on Amazon or wherever the heck you are. Both buy Relentless. <laughs> both Dean Stock was one and my one. That would be really, really good. Dean, um, is there any last words that you want to share, like to people out there listening um, who are just over, you know, like look at someone like you and they just go, well, you know, he's he's amazing and I could never be like that. What What's your words to them? 
Yeah, you know, I always say don't compare yourself to other people. You know, the problem we have nowadays is social media and the people like, well, I can't do that. You know, well, you're not that person. You're unique. Um, you know, I did it when I was doing the cycling. People are like, oh, you need to look at Mark Beaumont. I'm like, I'm not Mark Beaumont and, and things like that. So don't don't worry about what other people are doing. Uh, just focus on, on yourself. You know, I always say anticipation is worse than participation. Yeah, I love that. I quoted that yeah. on my Instagram yesterday from you. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people will tell you why they can't do it. Um, you know, but just block out those outs um, and, and just, yeah, just, just, just take it in bite size is what I say. You know, if you're going to, for example, a marathon, 26 miles, you wouldn't go try and do 26 miles. You probably wouldn't achieve it. I mean, you'd be so deflated and your self-esteem, but just set yourself a manageable target, five kilometers, hit that, and then you just grow from there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what I'd say. That's some fabulous advice. Dean, thank you so much for your time today. You're an absolute superstar. I'm, you know, in awe of your, um, you know, what you've done. And uh, thanks for, you know, raising so much money for charities and doing good in the world and being a positive uh, force out there in the world. I think it's really, really important. So thanks. Yeah, thanks right. Thank much. you for having me. You're more than welcome to come join me anytime on and off. Oh, man. <laughs> now, I would love to do that. Mum might have something to say. <laughs> That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.